thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight we're going to look at the sixth, sixth seal. We finished last week looking at the fifth seal, and let's uh, again remind ourselves what we're doing here. We're looking at all those seals. We started by understanding that the scene that we're seeing right now is not the scene in heaven with a beatific vision. It is rather a composite of heaven and earth. It is the way the church worships. It is the way the saints in heaven are worshiping with us. And it is something that shows us the power of the liturgy as it impacts this world. The first four seals resulted in God sending the, the four horsemen on the earth. The fifth one, we heard the souls of those who were martyred from under the elders speak. And today, the sixth seal is going to be opened. Today is the eve of the Feast of St. John of of God, in the Latin rite. Um, He was born on March 8, in 1495, in Portugal. He grew up working as a shepherd in Castile, and then he led a misspent wild youth and traveled over much of Europe and North Africa as a soldier in the army of Charles V and as a mercenary. He fought through a brief period of insanity. He peddled religious books and pictures Though without any religious conviction, he was making it mostly for the money. And when he was 40, he, the, the child Jesus appeared to him, and he had a conversion. He's a convert. And he, became, he, he now became a man of the faith. And uh, to show his atonement, he built a small house, and he cared for the poor, the lepers, and the needy. Those who could not walk, he carried them himself on his back and cared for them, and as a result, he converted them and converted those who was watching him doing all that work. And uh, St. John of of God um, founded the Order of Charity and the Order of Hospitalers of St. John of God. Uh, Died March 8, 1550 in Granada, Spain. He's the patron saint of alcoholics. Bodily ills, bookbinders and booksellers, firefighters, heart patients, hospitals. Hospital worker, workers, nurses, publishers, printers, sick people, sickness, and the city of Tultepec in Mexico. And um, <clears throat> tonight we'll pray to St. John of God to guide us to the study. Dear St. John, after a sinful life, through the power of God's holy word, you learned to love your fellow human beings. Self-sacrificing, you founded the Society of Hospital Brothers. No wonder the church made you the patron of patients and nurses. That is why we confidently have recourse to you. Please give assistance to all our sick and to all the people who are suffering and teach us to be kind like you. Amen. Chapter 6, verse 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when it is shaken by gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the generals and the rich and the strong and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand before it? 
This is the first part of the sixth seal. There are two other parts which cover chapter 7, and we'll deal with those next week. Today, we're going to deal with those verses, chapter 6, verse 12 through 17. First of all, there is something very ironical about this text. The wrath of the Lamb. The killer lamb. Have you ever seen a lamb? Have you ever seen a wrathful lamb? Have you? I have never seen a wrathful lamb, right? See the irony? The wrath of the lamb. This is not the first time we encounter this. We've encountered it before with those martyrs who washed their clothes white in the blood of the lamb. Right? St. John uses this often to remind us of the paradox of our faith. That oftentimes seems are not, oftentimes things are not what they seem to be. So even though Christ is merciful, Christ is kind, and Christ is loving, and all these are very true, and thank God they're true, because otherwise we would not be here and we would be without hope to ever attain heaven. It is also true that God, that Christ is just. That's why you have the wrath of the Lamb. Those two images combined. So, we should never forget one and hold on to the other. We have to have both. And when we have both, we have a reverent, loving relationship with Christ. It is true we have to have a personal relationship with Him, but it better be the right relationship. Not a relationship to suit our own particular emotional need. It has to be a relationship in truth. That is, we recognize Him for who He is, and we enter into a relationship with Him. And then we're on good footing. So we keep the two together. This passage right here is what I has is, is a primary example of what I call the Alice in Wonderland Syndrome. Alice in Wonderland Syndrome. You've heard me say this many times, where you have this alien anthropologist who show up on earth for five minutes, and he's only got time to pick a book. And he picks Alice in Wonderland. He, go back home, he, go, he goes back home to a faraway planet, and then he studies Alice in Wonderland to understand how humans behave. And he makes a presentation about what happens on Earth. You've got rabbits who are late. You've got a queen of heart that is chopping heads left and right. And he builds a whole anthropology, a whole explanation about how people behave based on Alice in Wonderland. We are that alien when it comes to Scripture many times, in the, particularly in this text. Let's reread it the way we modern folks read it. You'd see this kind of explanation all over the place. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when it's shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll. Every mountain and island was removed. The sun became black. The full moon became like blood. What does that suggest to you? The end of the world, right? Then we think, oh, it's the end of the world. Then what do we do? We start analyzing it scientifically. Huh, wait a minute. If the end of the world is to come, you won't have stars falling on earth. That makes no sense. So we, we, we are hampered then by our ex scientific explanation because now we're trying to get science to be the key that will explain Revelation. So we go from one problem to another. What is the problem? The problem is exactly as I said earlier. We don't understand the context in which those words were written. So we are like someone who can't understand a simile or an image or a figure of speech. We're like a guy who if you tell that guy, give me a break, he'd go out, buy you a break and give it to you. He cannot understand that there is distance between the text, give me a break, and the meaning, which is not about giving me a break. And you tell him, Let, let's hit the road, he'll go and start hitting the road. He doesn't understand that there is something else being meant when he hears those words. You understand? So we're like that. When we face this text and we see things like the sun became black as sackcloth, we understand it to mean that this sun physically became black as sackcloth. 
Because we don't understand the language. We don't have the Bible in our head. That's the problem we're facing when we read this text. So we give it all these fanciful explanations about the end of the world and everything is, that is happening cataclysmically, and that's it. It's all about the future. And so we miss the fundamental point that is being stressed here by St. John. So what we have to do, therefore, is recapture the meaning behind the words. Recapture the meaning behind the words. And we're going to do that tonight. So there's going to be a flurry of quotations that are going to come at you. I'm going to recommend this. Don't try to follow me tonight with Scripture. You're going to get tired very quickly. Instead, I strongly recommend that you get the CD of this talk, and then you sit down and you study. If you really want to understand and gain the benefit of this talk, you've got to have to sit down and study. Okay? The other thing I'm going to tell you is that it is, I don't understand how anyone can say that the Old Testament is irrelevant. Because without the Old Testament, we lose all the keys, all the interpretive keys we need for this text. I'm going to show you that as we go through. The first thing you need to understand is the language. This language, the sun becomes, became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, the stars of the sky fell to the earth. This is a language that has been used commonly by the prophets. The prophets used that many times. The Lord himself used that many times. And in every circumstance where this text was used, it indicated, it represented the end of a political entity. It indicated a shift in the powers, the earthly powers, the end of one. I'm going to show you that in a minute. The reason being is very simple. During the time of Christ, and even before, during the time of the prophets, how did they count time? What, did, what means did they have to measure time? They didn't have clocks. So the stars, the moon, and the sun were the natural means by which they measure time. In fact, in, um, I think it is in, is Nazca in Mexico? No, it's Peru. I think it's in Peru. There is this desert called the Desert of Nazca in Peru, where it hasn't rained in 10,000 years. You may have seen that in some movies, where you have these long, very long um, roads that have been carved 10,000 years, I mean, thousands of years ago, I don't know exactly when, by the, by the um, Inca civilization. And there has been a lot of speculation that those were actually runways for extraterrestrial ships. As if extraterrestrial ships would land like a jumbo jet. Go figure. But never mind that. That's the modern explanation. Those are runways. The extraterrestrials came and visit us. There is this old um, anthropologist. They called her the Lady of Nazca. She lived there for 20 years. She's German. And she spent her time making the effort to actually study this. To really study it. And eventually, she figured out what this was all about. It's a huge calendar. And the way she figured it out is that she took one of those runways, and on the 21st of, uh, what is it, um, the solstice of summer, 21st of June, the rays of the sun, as the sun sets, go all the way down to the end of that runway. The day before, it hits the left-hand side. The day after, it hits the right-hand side. The solstice of summer was so important to them religiously that they needed to know exactly when it fell. So they made it long enough to figure that out. That was it. It's a calendar. It was important for them to understand what a time. So that when was the 21st of June? So what did they have to use? The sun, the moon, and the stars. So... The, every kingdom, every ancient kingdom, measured its the, the passing of the time from the foundation of that kingdom. Without exception. The only exception is with Christ. Since Christ, we don't measure time to the foundation of any kingdom but the church. 
When a prophet goes to a king and says, the sun will not give its light, the stars will fall, and the moon will turn to blood, what is he saying? He's saying, you got, you got a bug in windows. Reboot. You're all, it's over. Game's over. Your kingdom is coming to an end. It's going to crash. That's what he's saying. So you see, there's a distance between the words and the actual meaning. They never meant that actually the sun is going to fall and the stars are going to fall. And that's not their intent. No more do that we mean when we say to somebody, give me a break. We don't really mean go out and get, get me a break, a car break. It doesn't even cross our mind. But if you think about what you're saying, to someone who comes from a different culture, it sounds very funny. What does give me a break has to do with the meaning of give me a break? There is a great distance between the two. Likewise here. Case in point. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10 through 13. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant and laid low the hotness of the... Of the The hotness of the a word that I mis, miswrote here. I will make men more rare than fine gold and mankind uh, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Similar language, isn't it? What was Isaiah talking about? It was a prophecy about the destruction of Babylon, the end of the Babylonian kingdom. This is what this was about. Nothing to do with the end of the world. The Babylonian kingdom will come to an end. And Isaiah prophesied, by name actually, that Cyrus, later he prophesied that Cyrus, the Persian, would free the Jews and allow them to come down and rebuild the temple. Because the Jews were, were exiled in Babylon and then the... The Persians basically took, out, took over. And he was basically saying, that's what's going to happen. Your kingdom is going to crash. Isaiah 24, 1, 6. Behold, the Lord will lay waste the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor, the earth shall be utterly laid waste and utterly despoiled. For the Lord has spoken with word, the earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the heavens languish together with the earth, the earth lies polluted under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt, Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. The problem when we hear texts like these is that our own latent anxiety takes over. And we project our own fears on the text. And that's what prevents us from really understanding its purpose. That was again another prophecy that is speaking about the end of that kingdom. Isaiah never meant it. He never intended for this to mean that the people in China are going to be suffering. No more so than when I say, give me a break, do I mean that everybody in the whole world is going to give me a break. You understand? In every circumstance, when a kingdom violates the moral law, the moral law, the, the covenantal curses that we've spoken about are triggered. But before they're triggered, prophets are sent to tell them, repent or else. Change your ways, change your ways or else. And that's what you hear here. God is forewarning them. If you don't change, that's what's going to happen to you. Because of those, because of the way I, as a father, deal with my children. All of you. Again, Isaiah 34.4, talking about the defeat of Edom. All the hosts of heaven shall not shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. 
In Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 6 through 8, Ezekiel is prophesying and speaking about the defeat of Egypt. And he says, I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood, and the watercourses will be full of you. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness upon your land. Same language, same idea, same principle. Joel, chapter 2, verse 10, and then 30 through 31. Joel is prophesying the defeat of Israel this time. The earth quakes before them, speaking about the army of Babylon coming down. The heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining, and I will give portents in in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And it shall come, it shall pass, that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls." This particular text, which was prophesied by Joel, was cited, quoted by Peter in the day of Pentecost, in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, I believe chapter 2, Peter quotes this text, speaking to people from Jerusalem. Why is that important? How is that relevant to us? It is relevant because if we look a little bit further in the book of Revelation, meaning chapter 7, we see something very interesting that is connected to this. In chapter 7, we have the following account. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And then, an angel is telling them, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God upon their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed. You've probably heard about that, that number if you've ever came into contact with the Jehovah Witness where they took that number and completely twisted its meaning. 144,000. And then following, we have a list of 12,000, representing this 144,000. 12,000 from what? 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. This was not about the whole world. This was specifically about Israel. Why? Because they were the ones at the greatest danger, at the gravest danger because of 70 A.D., when the Romans would come down and destroy Jerusalem. So that text from Joel, that was quoted by Peter, telling them, be ready or else, God's judgment is coming upon you. And right after what we read here, among the sixth seal, we see that the sealing of, the, of those 144,000 happens among the tribes of Israel. And then the next section deals with people coming from all tribes and tongues and nation, the Gentiles, joining in. I'm listing those passages because I really want to hammer to hammer in the idea that these images of sun being darkened and moon turning to blood and the stars falling are not at least literally a physical the 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 primary meaning is not literal the primary meaning is not literalist I should say meaning St John doesn't have in mind that they're actually going to physically fall from heaven you understand? That's not his primary intent. His primary intent to say is that through the liturgy, God will put an end to those who are persecuting the church. He will bring it to an end. And back then, if you remember from the letters, there were three, three dangers that the church was facing. From within, we have heresies. Remember the letters. From without, we have the persecution of the Jews coming from the temple in Jerusalem on one end and the persecution coming from Rome. So the church was hemmed in from all sides. Interior, inter- internally, there were dissension and heresies. Exteriorly, there were very strong enemies wanting to destroy her. 2,000 years later, the text is perfectly relevant. Hasn't changed, has it now? So what you see here, this liturgical setting applies today, just as it applied back then. The actors are different. It is no longer the Temple of Jerusalem or the Roman Empire that is threatening the church from without. 
There are other forces. Interiorly, we're not dealing with um, the Balaam, those who are following Balaam or those who are following Jezebel. We're dealing with other types of heresies. It's the same thing. God is still enthroned. Christ is still next to him. And what you see being deployed in front of you is as relevant today as it was back 2,000 years ago. And that's how you have to align your prayer during Mass. Because that's where you're entering. You're joining into what you see here. And that's how your prayer becomes powerful. Because when you understand that He is enthroned, He is in control of time and history and space, and that all events throughout the world flow from His throne through the liturgy, and that's how the world is watered with grace because of the Mass, because of the Church, then you become agents of grace. Very powerful one through your prayers. And you can see that the purpose of the book of Revelation is not to instill fear and anxiety in our hearts and make us tremble. It's the exact opposite. It's to root us in a firm and reasonable hope. Christ has conquered. Christ is Lord. Christ is victorious. And He created a means for that victory to reach us. The church and the liturgy. And we are His children. And He loves us and He will take care of us. That is the surety of our hope. That's what this is all about. So yeah, there is a lot of calamity and darkness and curses and all that, but don't forget the essential. Yeah, I'd I'd rather take questions later because there's a lot of ground I want to cover tonight. So bear with me, please. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6 to 11, the defeat of Israel's enemy. The Lord stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His ways were as of old. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was, was, was the wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was thy anger against the rivers or thy indignation against the sea? When thou didst ride upon thy, thy horses, upon thy chariot of victory, thou didst strip the, the sheath from thy bow and put the arrows to the string. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee and withered. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation at the light of thine arrows as they sped at the flash of thy glittering spear. Very powerful imagery representing the action of God. You see, again, the same idea. The horses, the chariots, the bow. Remember the first seal? The one on that white horse was given a bow. It is speaking about God who acts through history to punish the wicked and bless the just. You will find the same thing in Amos chapter 8, verse 8 through 9. There you read, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth upon all loins and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning of the morning of an only son for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. That's the key thing. The sun is darkened like what? Like sackcloth. Why was sackcloth brought into the picture? Because what do you do with sackcloth? You fast. You fast. Sackcloth is always used in fasting, in penance. So when it says the sun was darkened like sackcloth, the idea behind it was that God is going to bring people to repent. Essentially, these people are so materialistic, so connected to what they want and, and what they own, God is taking it all away from them. It is a curse, it is a punishment, but its purpose is to free them from that which prevent them to enter heaven. So it is still medicinal. God is trying to reach them to free them from what they that from what is preventing them from entering heaven. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23 through 28, we have similar imagery. I looked on the mountains, and lo, they were quaking. 
and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and lo, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Not to be taken literally, but it means that all that we own and all that we possess has been taken away. When the Lord comes. So, the purpose is always the same. That God has every intent of freeing us from that which prevents us from entering heaven. And He will do it through blessings if we cooperate. Or He will try to do it through curses and punishment if we don't. Because He loves us. And ultimately, if we persevere and keep on saying no to Him, we'll end in hell. But if we persevere, keep on saying yes to Him, we end, we, we end in heaven. But it's not that God had left us to our own means and He's passive. That's not how a good father acts. He's very active in our lives. He cares about everything we do. Right now, today, this moment, this minute. Now these passages, there are others, I'm not going to quote all of them. One I would recommend to read is Psalm 68. Psalm 68. You can also take a look at Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, Acts chapter 2. Same ideas. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Acts 2. Now these passages collectively mention four elements we see in Revelation. The shaking of the earth and the mountains. The darkening or shaking of the moon, stars, sun and heaven. And the pouring out of blood. All those imagery that we've seen are present in this text we just read right now. So, if we go back and take a quick look at those verses that I just read to you, we see that <clears throat> the first thing it speaks of is a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood. In Scripture, anytime you hear earthquakes, think of, give me a break. Anytime you hear earthquakes, think of, Give me a break. Instead, being the modern scientifically minded folks, every time we hear earthquakes, what do we think of? Earthquake. Right? We think of earthquake. Yeah, of course, us living in California especially. We are so literalist. When he says earthquake, he must mean earthquake. Really? Where do we get that from? How do you know that when he says earthquakes, he actually means earthquakes? We project that on the text. You understand? We have our own filters. We project that without even noticing we're doing that. Just like that extraterrestrial who took Alice in Wonderland, saw a rabbit running around and being late. Well, of course, Carol Lewis meant a real rabbit that can run around and being late. You have to understand that this text is, is pulling or is making references to so many texts in the Old Testament without ever quoting it. Never once does St. John actually quote from the Old Testament. He doesn't do that. But it's all there. It's all there. So we have the difficulty, the challenge for us is to rebuild all that. Because we don't study scripture enough to understand it and integrate it in our thinking and in imagery. So when we say earthquake, we know scripturally, oh, he means the end of kingdoms doesn't mean physical earthquake. So, earthquakes signify the removal of nations, kingdoms, cities, opposed to the kingdom of God. Okay? In Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 1 through 7. Woe to Ariel. Ariel, the city where David encamped. Ariel is a name given to, to Jerusalem. Add year to year, let the feasts come around, but I will bring distress upon Ariel with mourning and grief. You shall be to me like Ariel. I will, encamp, I will encamp like David against you. I will encircle you with outpost and set up siege works against you. Prostrate you shall speak from the earth and from the base dust. Your words shall come. Your voice shall be like a ghost from the earth and your words like chirping from the dust. The horde of your arrogant shall be like fine dust. The horde of the tyrants like flying chaff. Then suddenly, in an instant, you shall be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder, earthquake, and great noise, whirlwind storm, and the flame of consuming fire. And like a dream, a vision in a night, shall be the horde of all the nations who war against Ariel with all the earthworks of her besiegers. 
This has nothing to do with thunder, earthquake, and fire. This has to do with what? With the hoofs of the horses of the Babylonians as they come raging against Jerusalem. It sounds like an earthquake, but it, there's no earthquake. Actually, there's never been an earthquake in the Holy Land that I know of. Let me be more specific. Jerusalem was never overtaken by an earthquake. Okay? Of that I'm quite sure. The city of Jerusalem was never overtaken by an earthquake. So obviously this has nothing to do with earthquakes. It has to do with the sound of horses coming down that sound like the earth is trembling. The end of nations. So when he says earthquakes, he means things are about to change. Those nations are right now solidly encamped are going to be taken away. In the letters to the Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 26 to 29, his voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, I will once more shake not only earth, but heaven. St. Paul is talking. That phrase, once more, points to the removal of shaken, created things, so that what is unshaken may remain. Therefore, we who are receiving the unshakable kingdom, unshakable kingdom, which is the church, should have gratitude with which we should offer worship pleasing to God in reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The idea of earthquake is that when earth shakes, what's on the surface goes away. So when you say to a kingdom, an earthquake is coming at you, you're saying your end is at hand. That's what it means. Now, if you notice, there are six parts of the cosmos which are described as destroyed. Earth, sun, moon, stars, heaven, and then every mountain and island. Six. Six is what? It's not necessarily unholy. It is simply the day on which God completed the creation. It is the day of man and the beast. So it is really the day of worldly things. right? Man was created on the sixth day, but man was created for the seventh day. right? It can become unholy if somebody gets really attached to it. That's the whole idea. So six things are being destroyed. What does that mean? It means that the material world, the created world, is being taken away. Everything that stands against the spiritual, sacramental kingdom of God is being taken away. That's the meaning of what we're reading here. Earth, sun, moon, stars, heaven, and then mountain and island. You can also read it at seven, in which case it indicates completeness. Completeness of everything that is opposed to God's kingdom. The stars can represent heavenly powers of good. You find that in the book of Judge, chapter 5, verse 20. Book of Daniel, chapter 8, verse 10. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 16. Chap, um, verse 20, chapter 12, verse 4. Or the stars can also indicate evil. You'll find that in the Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 19. Isaiah 14, 12. Chapter 24, 21 of Isaiah, chapter 40, 47, verse 13 of Isaiah, Jeremiah, chapter 8, verse 2. The book of Wisdom, chapter 13, verse 2. Revelation, chapter 9, verse 1. So, a star is ambivalent. Obviously, based on what I just told you, St. John is not thinking about the twinkle, the twinkle little things up there. All right, when he means star. He's got something else in mind. In this instance, the emphasis is on the way these stars have been used by idol worshippers. God frees us from the lies and deceit of the enemy. Remember that the ancient adored the stars. Okay? And remember that the modern these days do something very similar when they read their horoscope which I'm sure by now you've heard me repeat it enough times, that reading your horoscope and giving it any value is sinful. It's a sin of idolatry. Don't do that. 
The same is true of mountains. Is he having in mind mountains? Kilimanjaro, Himalayas? They're going to just be shaken away, thrown tossed left and right? No. What do you put on a mountain? Usually. Cities. You want a really fortified city, where do you put it? Up on a mountain, right? Well, if you have a city on a mountain and you took the mountain away, what happens to it? It comes crashing down, doesn't it? You understand the image? That's what's behind it. He's saying, essentially, all the foundations of your material power are being taken away. None of that is going to remain. If you understand that, if you have that background of text in your mind, and you have the echoes of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Amos, Joel, this text resonates very, very powerfully. Very powerfully. It becomes a, a very inspiring text, an awesome text, because it reminds you of all that God has done before and makes you understand what He's about to do now. So the mountains can represent forces of good. For instance, Zion is always spoken of as a mountain. In the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verse 44, in, um, and, verse 40, and in the book of Ezra, 13, 6, and 7, or, or evil, in Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 7, and Jeremiah, 51, verse 25. Again, I don't have time to go and, and walk you through each of those. We've done a lot of that preparatory work before. There's a whole series on all the symbolism. I recommend you look at them. But I'm just pointing those out to you to make you realize that behind the, those images, those words that we ascribe literalistic meaning to, a mountain in our minds is a mountain, a star is a star, the sun is a sun, etc., etc., and then we are in, in Fufu land, getting this text to say whatever we feel like it says about something that has to do with modern America and losing our way through it, we have to pull back, understand the relationship of those images to their actual contextual meaning, and then we have a much more fruitful text that we can apply back to our world in, a, in an appropriate way. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, islands always represent Gentile nations. An island is always a Gentile nation. That's what it means when he says island. It doesn't mean an island. All right? So you can see that in, um, in Psalm 72, verse 10, Psalm 97, verse 1, in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 1, 45, verse 16, 49 verse 1, 49, 49 verse 22, 51 verse 5, 60 verse 9. In Jeremiah 38 verse 10, Ezekiel chapter 26 verse 18, Zechariah chapter 2 verse 11, and the first book of Maccabees chapter 8 verse 12. And let someone tell you again that the Old Testament is irrelevant. So, when he says mountains, islands, stars, all that, he's talking about earthquakes, he's talking about kingdoms who oppose the workings of the church, those are going to be taken away. Now he deals with the people. Okay? He's dealing with the people, and those are listed next. So we had the sky, we had earthquakes, sun black, the sun became black, the full moon became like blood, the stars fell, the sky vanished like a scroll that is rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. By the way, the sky vanished like a scroll. The idea behind it is if you, re, if you have a scroll open, you cut, you cut it in the middle and both portions roll back. So the ancients, the way they understood the world was that the sun, stars, and moon were in the first heaven. The second heaven is a solid, solid dome, which is the actual sky. And in the third heaven... God lives. So when he says the sky is rolled back, the sun, the, the, the stars and the moon fell down, so the first heaven is taken away, the second heaven is taken away, the third heaven now can be seen, God is coming down. Alright? God is coming down and God is riding his chariot and God has unsheathed his bow 
And God is going to punish those nations opposed to His church. For what purpose? Precisely for the furthering of the church. That's always the purpose. Because through the church, the world is converted. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the generals, and the rich, and the strong, and everyone, slave and free. Kings, great men, generals, rich, strong, everyone. Again, the six categories. Everybody is indicated. Who are these people, by the way? Are these people who are fearing God and loving God and serving God? No. Those are precisely the people who live in this material world. Who made that material world the end all and be all of their lives. You understand? This is not about the faithful who are in the church. Those, it's about those who are not. Those who are not willing to adore God. Now, but what I mean, faithful in the church, I mean people who are really in the church for the purpose of being in the church and praying to God and trying to become a saint. Those are the ones who are protected. The ones who are being punished here are all those who are opposed to them. Okay? We've gone so far in this notion of God is love, God is love, God is love, God loves everybody, that... The notion God is going to punish anybody seems strange to us. We're going to have to readjust our ways of thinking because Scripture says otherwise. So we have six categories. You can again look at it as seven, in which case it's completeness. But six seems to be more um, better suited for this text. Although I won't argue the point if somebody says it's seven. So this parallelism between the two sixes reinforces the idea that the world is to be judged. The judgment of the cosmos is figurative of the judgment of the world. So the two are linked. I remember from the series on the temple, we saw how the temple is a mini cosmos and the cosmos is a macro temple. The two are linked. Hence God judges the heavens by destroying its orderly movements in order to indicate that humanity has violated his moral order and is being judged. All right? So, as Catholics, when we look at what happened with, uh, was it Katharina? Uh, right? Hitting uh, New Orleans. And when you think about what they do on Mardi Gras in New Orleans, all right, you look at it liturgically, and you know that it's in your heart. Right? God is saying, let me show you your filth. Right? I'm going to show you what you guys are doing in the moral order. Because I don't seem to be able to do it any other way. You start to look at things in God's way, not in ours. Because without that way of looking at things, guess what? We will not reform our lives. It's that simple. There's a tiny minority of us that really is driven by love of God. The majority of us is driven by the fear of hell. All right? That's fallen human nature. That's the reality of it. So should God abandon all of us because we're just afraid of hell and we don't love Him enough? No. But we live in a world of wimps. Where we don't dare speak biblical truth for fear of being politically incorrect. What is September 11? Two, two planes hit Two buildings and killed a whole bunch of people inside, which we call innocent. And in that specific instance, indeed, they were innocent. Meaning, they did not do anything personally to merit this. You agree with me? What is God showing us through it? What, what, what is God telling us? He's basically showing us how ugly abortion is. What is abortion? An act of terrorism against someone who is innocent in the womb of his mother. You understand? That's why Christ said, He who has ears, let him hear, and he who has eyes, let him see. That's what he meant by it. What he was doing back then, he's still doing today. But guess what? We're smarter, more educated. Than these guys who were back then. We have cell phones, we have our gadgets, we have our computers. 
And we cannot see it anymore. We cannot read it anymore. We don't understand it anymore. At least these guys back then knew the gods were upset with us or something. They had a religions, religious reaction. I was very, it was really interesting to me watching this movie called 15 Days about the crisis with Cuba. I didn't know that. But during that crisis, people, the people living in the United States, really, that happened in 1962 for the youngsters who are here who do not know anything about that. Pardon? Oh, okay, 13, 15, I'm not going to haggle. Uh, what is really interesting for me in the movie is that uh, the, the, uh, the advisor to President Kennedy is walking back home, and he walks by Catholic Church, and there's the sign. It's like 2 o'clock in the morning. There's the sign that says, 24 hours confession. I was floored. 24 hours confession. It really floored me. He actually stood in line. See what I'm saying? God will use whatever means He can to help us come back to Him when we violate the moral order. In the Septuagint, again, the order of kings, rulers, and great ones occurs only in Isaiah and in Revelation. When we hear rulers, kings, and great ones, it occurs only in those two texts. Isaiah and Revelation. The text of Isaiah I read to you earlier. Isaiah 34, verse 12. There's also reference to Psalm 2, which is a... Prophetic, kingly song. Very important song. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. So these people are undergoing a judgment because of the persecution of the people of God. It is clearly seen in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 1 through 34, verse 13. 33 and 34 show you that the kingdoms of the world undergo judgment because of their opposition to the people of God. So anytime, any people, any nation that opposes God's work, God's church, will undergo judgment. There's no if, there's no but. The timing is only the question. And they are always judged because of idolatry. Always because of idolatry. You'll see it in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 10. And, uh, and then actually verse 1 through 21. Isaiah says, you enter into the rocks and hide yourselves in the earth from the presence of the terror of the Lord. But the idols will completely vanish and they will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord. In that day they will cast away uh, to the moles and bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord. When he arises to make the earth tremble. You have a similar description in Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 23 through 28, and chapter 5, verse 7. They point to the same thing. Another clue may be taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 18 and 19, where the same groups are mentioned, apparently as allies of the beast. We're going to get to it. Also in chapter 13, the rich and the poor, the free and the slaves, are said to have the mark of the beast. And they all appeal to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us. This, is a, this alludes to text from Hosea, the prophet Hosea, chapter 10, verse 8. They will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. There's also similar imagery, imagery used in Jeremiah, chapter 4, verse 29. So the idea here is, is that those, this text is very realistic. In fact, if, if you understand it from a psychological point of view, you'll see that it's extremely realistic. What this is alluding to is that the, the heavens are open. God's, God is made visible, so to speak, through these actions. You see God, the finger of God, through all these actions. And these people who refuses the moral order have really two ways of reacting. One is to repent, which is the pr primary purpose of this would be to help them repent. But realistically, they will not. What will they do instead? Harden their hearts. Hide from the truth. Refuse it. Fall on us and hide us. Why, why do they want to be hidden? They're not saying fall on us and kill us. They're not saying, the text is not, they're not asking for the rocks to fall on them so they can be, they're not trying to commit suicide here. They're saying fall on us and hide us so that they can continue in their ways. They can continue in their ways. I am reminded of a very powerful poem written by 
one, perhaps the greatest poet of them all, Victor Hugo, which is about, it's, it's actually called the I, it's called the, the I, and it's about Cain. And Victor Hugo describes how Cain, after killing Abel, was trying to hide. And he had his children around him, and he kept on saying, the eye sees me, hide me. So they build, they build uh, um, walls around him, and he said, it still sees me, hide me. <coughs> and they build the Tower of Babel, tall and high, reaching to the clouds. And he was sitting in the middle, and he still said, the eye sees me, hide me. And finally, they build a tomb like a pyramid. And Cain entered it and closed the door, and darkness fell all around him, and he was hidden, and right in the tomb, the eye was there looking at him. That's what we're talking about. Trying to hide from the moral order that God put in our hearts. So what we call a sin is sin. Hiding doesn't really work now, does it? Now I've told you about all of this, but at the end of the day, St. John is going from Revelation through Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Jeremiah, the Psalms. He's using this as an indirect reference to what? To the first text where somebody was hiding. Genesis. Genesis looms large as a background to all of this. This is called deconstruction. What you see here. The world is being deconstructed. The heaven is being rolled away. The stars are falling. The sun is not giving us light. It's an act of deconstruction. We go from this being deconstructed to the humans being affected. The, the same order it happened in Genesis. And after the creation of the world and the sin of Adam, what did Adam do? Where are you? I heard your voice. I was hiding. All right. St. John understands that the book of Genesis, by the way, God willing, when we finish this in 2020, you know, my thought would be to go back to Genesis. Um, you see here that Genesis is used as an archetype, as a prophetic archetype for how God deals with us, for what happened in the beginning will happen at the end. All right? That's the idea behind all of this text that we just read right now. It's an act of deconstruction. The liturgy is like an acid thrown on the world. It burns away the lies. It burns away the deceit. It burns away the illusions that we created for ourselves. It shows us the naked truth. And then it, it actually gives us an ultimatum. Repent or else. That's what the liturgy does. That's what the church does across the ages. That's why the world will always hate the church. There's no way around it. I've already mentioned that everyone, slave and free, doesn't mean all of humanity, but those who have committed themselves to earthly good in contrast to Christians who are pilgrims. So you will find in the book of Revelation the expression, those who dwell on the earth, is used exclusively to denote those who made earth their abode. They live here. They're not pilgrims going to heaven. So it doesn't mean everybody. It means those who are opposed to the kingdom. Now the wrath that we spoke of here is alluded in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. When I speak of the wrath of the Lamb, the Lord Himself told the Pharisees, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He knew what was going to happen. He knew about His own wrath unleashed upon them after His death and resurrection. And then we're going to see some more references to the wrath as we get to the trumpets later. And then this description concludes with the words taken from Joel, chapter 2. We go back to Joel because it is in context important for them living back then. That's why I personally date this text to be pre-70 AD from the internal evidence. There's so many allusions to the you know, upcoming, to the destruction, to the imminent destruction of Jerusalem that I don't think it would have made sense if it was written after. I mean, if it was given, the vision was given after 70 AD. That's why it makes a lot more sense it was given before. The description of Joel 
chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. For the day of the Lord is great, and who will be able to resist it? And the words of, the, of Joel are supplemented by a prophecy against Nineveh from the prophet Nahum. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth is laid waste before him, the world and all that dwell with therein. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken asunder by him. And the prophecy about Nineveh was historically fulfilled, but it stood as a foreshadowing of things to come because Nineveh in the times of Jesus became what? What stood for Nineveh? Jerusalem. All right? So it's very interesting that it ends with a prophecy that had to do with Nineveh because it indicates how Jerusalem was to be destroyed in 70 AD. I know that there is quite a bit that I've thrown at you in this hour, literally in this hour. I recommend, again, if you really want to reap the graces of this text, that you listen to this and you start studying the prophets, the Old Testament, familiarizing yourself with it. So you start to have this text echo in your mind and in your heart. And the words mean what they're supposed to mean. And then all the graces which are promised in this book, blessed is the one who hears the word of the prophecy and keep them. Then shall you be able to keep those words. There is much reward that you can be, that be gained by you studying on your own, prayerfully. So, roll up your sleeves and get to work, and may God bless you. Now, we do have some time for questions. Charles, very good question. Yeah, definitely. What sense are they talking about from the four senses? In every single instance when a prophecy is given, it is essentially eschatological, about events that are going to come, right? And also anagogical, dealing with the church or the temple. Those are the primary meanings that you see in them. Now, there is a literal meaning implied when the prophecy stops becoming a, stops being be prophecy and become historical event. Then it becomes literal. So, for instance, take the prophecy about Babylon. When it was uttered, its literal meaning was that in the future, these events about Babylon will take place. Right? It was eschatological. It was also about future events. When it actually took place, it became, it became literal. Now, in our case, the primary meaning that we look at it from John's perspective is the same thing. It's eschatological in the sense that something is going to happen in the near future, not the end of the world, near future, concerning these kingdoms. But also, it is definitely something about the end of the world. Which is, I'm not dealing with at all because I don't have time. But there is a sense in which all this text apply to the end of the world, but it's secondary. It isn't primary. All right? Yes. No, the Lord uh, himself uses it as well. I didn't quote chapter 3. It wasn't 3. Uh, it was Matthew... Um, oh, yeah, you're right. It is actually... My apology. You're right. It is St. John the Baptist because the Lord used the same language later in 24. So the question is... No, it doesn't at all. It's the same thing. Who, who warns you from, to flee from the coming wrath? I was thinking of 24 where the Lord says... Pretty much the same thing. But thank you for the clarification. Yes. The question is, well, if the curse applied to a country, if you look at it from a family perspective, you live in this country, so you're going to bear those curses as well. And the answer to this question is chapter 7. What do we see in chapter 7? Two things. First, so it's a con continuation of the sixth seal. First, the events are suspended until those who are of the, the 144,000 are sealed with a protective seal. Second, all those from all nations and tribes who are faithful to the Lord come also. And all of them are folded under this protection. Now, here's the deal. That's where it becomes a little bit tricky. Generally speaking, we tend to think of protection purely in the physical sense. That's not how God thinks. And the, what you see in the book of Revelation elevates our thought to make us understand that we are here pilgrims. We're going to die. The point is where we, where we end after dying. Okay? That's how you have to think about it. All right, Ramsey? Because the question is, it says everyone, slave and free. So how could we restrict the meaning of everyone to those who are actually 
setting themselves against the, the, the kingdom of God. Two ways. The first one is all the text I cited to you. When you see them in context, the way this was used. So there is sort of a, uh, a precedent to the use of that word. And when it was used, it was constantly used in this sense. That you are prophesying against a nation that is opposed to God. Those who are committed to this nation, those who support it, are the ones who are targeted. Those who follow God, the righteous ones, are protected. So there is precedent to help us understand the meaning. And the second one, the context itself tells you that it's addressed really to the nations, not to the ones who are uh, faithful to God. Because if this was not the case, we're going to have a big problem when we hit chapter 7. When we see the ones who are being sealed and all the other ones. That, w- that would be part of this everyone. So how come we have them there as now? You see? For those two reasons, everyone is not what we mean by all the people living on the planet. Yes. Yes, they are in fear. It's a culpable fear. It's a fear of a guilty, like Adam was afraid. It is not the ones who are actually waiting and and yearning for God's kingdom. Those have no fear. They don't have that guilty fear. That's the difference. Not necessarily. That's very important. The question is, those who don't have the fear will suffer like everyone else. Maybe, maybe not. It depends on the circumstance of everyone. I'll point this out to you. In the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, we know from historical records that between 600 to 1.2 million Jews died. We also know, through Eusebius the historian, that not one Christian perished. Not one. I'm talking about Christians of Jewish background. They all escaped when they saw the signs and went to the little town of Pella up in Galilee and waited there. And not one of them perished. That's what we mean. So, God will take us when, when we are at our best. Think of it this way. But he does. He's a loving Father. He, he's contriving everything to take us when we are at our best. You've got to understand this. He loves us. Wouldn't you do that? You would if you loved your kids. You choose the best moment when they look their best to take the picture. Welcome home, kid. All right? The fear of death is not Christian. Pray to God that He frees you from the fear of death. I'm not the one saying it. It's St. Paul. Oh, death, where is your sting? All right? Any other question? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.